Well, good morning. What do you think? Did I do it right? Is the microphone working? I think I hear it. Fantastic. It is so good to be with you. And uh, if you are a guest here this morning, how many, how many, you, you're, you're a guest here this morning and you've, you've never heard me or you've never heard me preach? Cool. Come back next week. It will be better. <laughs> this week, just like give us a lot of grace this week. It's really uh, a joy to be here. And um, I think it's been 10 years since the first, I think it's been 10 years since the first time I was here with you at K-First. And uh, I found out some information about some people, and ever since, I've been coming back. I just told them, hey, I don't want this information to get out. Have me back to speak again this year. And it's been working out great. So I've been here every year for the last 10 years or so. And uh, delighted to be with you. And I absolutely echo what uh, Pastor Dave and Ann said. You know, you have, I mean, as you get older, you have to learn how to navigate friendships with a little bit less time, right? That's just, you have those people that, like you talk to, uh, not as often as you would like. That's going to be the awesome thing about forever, um, but you just have those moments where you're like, these are my people. These are people that we love. And God sort of carves out a little space in your heart that is their shape, and it just is designated just for them. And uh, my wife and I uh, have, have those in our hearts for Pastor Dave and Ann and all kinds of wonderful people here that we love, staff and, and alumni and students from North Point. Josh, nice to find out you're going to spend a couple more years with us. That's great. A month. Months. Months. Months is out of us. Weeks, weeks, days. He's trying to negotiate. That's what's going on right now. That is fantastic. Well, if you do me a favor this morning, and uh, if you've got a Bible or you have uh, your iPhone or your, your iPad or your Android device or you've memorized the Bible, uh, um, why don't you flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. And... Um, it has been some time the last couple of years, hasn't it? This world that we are in, uh, and I use that word, and it will be important to us, this world that we are in. How many know what I mean when I say we have been in it the last couple of years? Like, you can pretend to be as spiritual as you want. You can close your eyes and lock your door and turn off the news, but somehow it's still just in the air the last couple of years. It is impacting us, the way we feel, the way we think, the way we act, the way we behave. I mean, I don't know about you, but some of my lowest sanctification moments in life have belonged to the last couple of years. I'm just like, I didn't know that I still had that capacity inside of me. If you're living with someone who behaved badly the last couple of years, say amen. Oh, we could just have an altar call right now, that'd be good. Or a fist fight, one of the two. And uh, I've, in, that, in the last couple of years, I just have been reminded that when we think about the coming of Jesus to life, coming into this world, uh, being born into this world, that it's almost like the four gospel writers intentionally remind us that Jesus came into real life. If you go back and you look at the story, you have a very, very real financial situation potentially for, uh, for John the Baptist's parents as his father is struck dumb in the holy place. We know in Second Temple Judaism that a priest who, was, who could not speak or who was deaf could not be a part of the worship in the, in the temple. He could potentially lose his job. We have an ongoing sort of racism and genocide as we have a madman who was literally saying, let's kill every male child under a certain age. We have all kinds of societal disruption that is happening. And it's in the midst of all of that that Jesus shows up, and it's almost like even the event of his birth is designed to tell us that it doesn't matter what the environment is doing around us, that there is something life-changing that happens when we come into the presence of Messiah that all of a sudden just renders that, not as though it's not real, but it overshadows that because he is more real and becomes transformative to us. And so that is where I think we find ourselves today in a real world that is having real challenges, and some of us, we could probably go around the room and we could just get ourselves good and depressed. We could probably talk about financial challenges, relational challenges, family challenges, employment challenges, all kinds of challenges that are going on. And it's real, right? It's real. 
You are in it. You can't avoid it. It is real. And you can say, well, I'm in Jesus. Okay, but tell me that it hasn't impacted your sleep. Tell me that it hasn't impacted your heart rate. It hasn't impacted your emotional mood. We are in it, right? So the question that we want to ask this morning is if we are in it and the thing we are in doesn't change, I wish that I could come here this morning and say, at the end of this service, we're going to lay hands on everybody, and every problem that all of us have is automatically going to go away. That would be awesome. But the reality is, is that probably we're going to leave this place, and most of what we were in when we came in, we're still going to be in when we go out. So the question is, how do we experience Jesus in a way that's more transformative than this very real three-dimensional life that we are experiencing on a day-to-day basis in a way that actually impacts us. So if you're a note-taker, you can kind of jot this down. Just these few little words, what we are in. We'll be in Ephesians chapter one, and why don't we pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your promises are not words on a page, but they are expressions of your heart, your will, of your intent to us. So that when we know what you want to do, all we need to do is lean in. All we have to do is lean into your presence, lean into who you are, and we have a sure foundation for knowing what you want to accomplish in our lives. And so today I pray that we would be able to leave, we'd be able to walk into this world we are living in, but we would be able to experience it in a new and a fresh and a different way because of him who we are in. We pray that you would help us do that. Let it be real and authentic. Let people around us notice a difference in our lives. Let coworkers and family members notice that we seem more okay, more loved, more whole, more refreshed, more at peace, more, more, more strength because of what you do in our lives this morning and as we follow and walk with you. We ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, Ephesians chapter one. Now, if you haven't already flipped there, you can go ahead and jump there. And uh, the first passage, is it okay if we read a little bit of Bible this morning? Is that cool if we do that? Because I want to read four kind of sections of Scripture. And I know sometimes in our preaching we can like read a passage and then move on. But I really want to kind of anchor us in the text and see what Paul is doing. But in the greetings uh, to the, the Ephesians, and for those of us that are maybe new to reading Scripture, when you read something like the letter to the Ephesians, it is exactly what it sounds like. Paul sat down and he said, I'm going to write a letter, and he writes a letter to accomplish a very specific purpose, right? So it's just like if you can imagine, Pastor Dave gets up and he says, you know, the rest of this year, we're going to talk about loving people well. How many of you are, are, are smart enough to figure out that maybe some people haven't been loving people well? And maybe that's an area we need to grow in. And the goal is that at the end of that year, what? That we will love people better. That's the goal. Similarly, when we read a document from Paul, he's actually trying to accomplish something. And he's a very, very smart guy. Right from the beginning of his document, he starts to kind of lay out this idea. And I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1, just verses 1 and 2 with me. And here's what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in, everybody say in, Ephesus and are faithful in, everybody say in, Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is introducing this important idea even right there in the opening of his uh, epistle and what he's essentially trying to frame for the Ephesian people and is preserved for us is this reality that as a Christ follower, you have dual citizenship. That it is equally true that the people that he's writing to are in Ephesus. That is not not real. Just because you became a follower of Jesus doesn't negate that you are living a real life. But it is also true that they are in Christ Jesus, that they have these two residencies, and then he sort of qualifies that, and he says, but there is a way in which you are going to have to be faithful to one. So you are in Ephesus, and you're eating there, and you're drinking there, and you're loving there, and you're working there, and you're loved there, and you're experiencing discouragement and encouragement there. All of that is happening in Ephesus. But you are also experiencing, experiencing experiencing a reality of being in Christ as well. And those two things are in competition with each other for what will have the the dominant formative influence in our lives. 
Those two things are in competition because it is important to decide and determine what we are in, but more importantly, what has the dominant role? What actually is most transformative for us? Now, this idea of what it means to be formed by an environment is actually really important to Paul, and I think you will find is important to you as well. I think if Paul were here today, he would not have had and absolutely affirm and validate what a lot of our sociologists and psychologists now tell us as a commonplace, but he knew thousands of years ago, and it is this, and it's what we are in makes us who we are. That our, in, our environment forms us drastically. The environment we are raised in, the environment we exist in, the nexus of our relationships and our material experiences plays a huge role in impacting who we are as people. How many of us, like you have moved on from your parents' house, you don't live with them anymore, and yet they abide. They are with you. They creep out of every pore, out of every argument, out of every discussion, out of every decision. They are with you. We are, in many ways, the sum and substance of what we have experienced in life. How many are familiar with something as simple, and I use it by way of example, as the ACE assessment? Anybody know what that is? Adverse Childhood Experience Assessment. A simple rubric of 10 questions that we can ask a child or an adult, and if we get four or more yeses on that, and it's questions like, were you worried as a child about food scarcity? Did one of your parents experience imprisonment? Were you physically abused? Were you sexually abused? All of these kinds of questions. If we get four or more yeses in there, we all of a sudden know something. We know that that person is twice as likely to be a smoker, seven times more likely to be an alcoholic or exhibit some other kind of addictive behavior. We know they're more likely to be violent verbally or physically. They're more likely to have more marriages, more likely to abuse uh, prescription drugs, more likely to have depression, anxiety, and so on and so forth. They are 12 times more likely to have attempted suicide. And if a person has six or more, they experience an average 20% decrease in lifespan. Why? Because our environments impact us. What we are in actually really makes a difference for us. Now, I can show this to you in a picture, if you can pull those up. (laughs) The left is my idiot dog. (laughs) His name is Herbert, and he is exactly as, as smart as he looks. Uh, I think his IQ is four or five. We haven't had him tested, but that's my best guess. And my 90-pound sheepadoodle will climb up into my lap, let me hold him like a baby. Uh, he literally, if someone comes to our house, it doesn't matter if they're friend, if they're foe, if they're carrying a giant blood-covered butcher axe, it doesn't matter. He's gonna do the same thing. He's gonna wiggle so hard that it looks like his backside falls off, then he's gonna roll on his back, expose himself, and be like, you wanna rub it, don't you?" <laughs> that's, that's what he's going to do, okay? There's a reason that he's going to do that. My dog has never known what it's like to be under threat. He has no vocabulary for understanding that there is any such thing as a human who does not want to rub his belly. He, he doesn't know what that would look like. On the right side of that is a Tibetan Mastiff. Now, Tibetan Mastiffs are in the wild up in Tibet. It is one of the harshest, most rugged climates in the world. A single failed hunt in that environment could mean death for the parent and all of the puppies that they're trying to raise. And so that is the normal resting face. No, it's not. It's not. That's not true. I don't mean to dramatize it. But there is a reason that that animal looks like that. Its environment has framed it, has shaped it. And you and I know less. Now we have agency, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but you and I, we are the product of our environments. I'll give you another example of this. The grandchildren of survivors of the Holocaust during the Second World War. Studies have been done with them. Now keep in mind, many of them have never been to Germany. They have never been in a concentration camp. In fact, many of these Uh, grandchildren did not know their family history, did not know that that was a part of their story. And yet when there were surveys done, they were three times as likely to have experienced a serious psychiatric disorder before the age of 18. Because our environments 
shape us. And then when we become shaped by our environments, we become part of other people's environments. And we shape them. In fact, the passage in Scripture that says that the sins of the Father are visited on the Son is really a commentary about the power of environment. That when the Father decides, I am going to be broken in this way and I'm going to participate in that brokenness, that then creates an environment for the child, which leads to brokenness. How many know you can be a victim and a perpetrator? You can be the person who was the victim, then out of that brokenness become the person who creates other victims. That we can experience anger, we can experience loss, we can experience betrayal, and out of that brokenness, we become someone else's arch villain. And in the same story, the same life, we can play both roles. You say, well, JP, that's, that's all pipe, pop psychology. That doesn't impact me. I'm a new creation in Christ. That is true. You are a new plant. And as the proud parent of many, many dead plants, I can assure you that even new creation plants require an environment that is conducive to their growth. We find this same idea in Scripture as well. The power of environments is part of the created order of God. He's made it that way. One of the reasons that I'm called to be a good husband is because I am my wife's primary environment. And I want her to experience an environment of grace because it will bring her life. One of the reasons we're called to be good parents is because we are our children's environment and we want them to experience something that looks more like Eden than this post-fallen world that we live in. Part of the reason we're called to be good coworkers and good neighbors is because we are a part of their environment. And we have a choice. Will, when chaos has come upon us, will we find a way, which we'll talk about, to stop that process and say, I'm not going to be shaped by my Ephesus, I'm going to be shaped by Christ, and therefore not only ourselves be renewed, but become a part of renewing other people's environments, or will we just get into the river, flow down the river of chaos that's happening in the culture that's around us? Does that make sense? And we have seen this and experienced it, haven't we? Most of us probably either in our own family or in people that we know, we have seen cycles of poverty. We've seen cycles of addiction, cycles of anger, cycles of selfishness over and over and over again. Probably one of the most common phrases and experiences that people have is where a young person looks at their parents and resents a particular behavior and then finds themselves unwittingly falling into the same behavior pattern. How does that happen? What we are in makes us who we are. In fact, it's interesting, we, I think we acknowledge that as a culture, maybe the name won't be familiar to you. How many have ever heard the name Phyllis Wheatley? Phyllis Wheatley was uh, born in Africa at seven or eight years old, she was taken as a slave to New England in the 18th century. She was brought to New England on a ship called the Phyllis, and she was bought by the Wheatley family. And so she was named after the ship that took her from home and the family that ensured she would never return. By the time she was a teenager, she had begun writing poetry. Well, it turned out she was actually really good at it. And uh, when she had become an evangelical Christian, a uh, very famous preacher during the 18th century named George Whitfield, when he passed away, <clears throat> she wrote a memorial poem to him, which ended up being published and rocketed her to fame. She was brought before kings in England, taken over to England. She was published in the press, but the reason she became famous wasn't because she was a woman. There's a rich tradition of female poets. It wasn't because she was from Africa, because there's a rich tradition of storytelling and poetry and literature in Africa, which remains today, even in our own country. I mean, Maya Angelou, anybody, right? Brilliant. The reason that she was thought of as an anomaly is she did not respond in a way that was consistent with her environment. She had been experienced incredible loss at a very early age. Everything she had had been taken from her. Every person around her treated her as though she was a non-person. And yet somehow in the middle of that, inside she was completely alive. That was what made her an anomaly, unusual. 
Because even the world knew that when people have experienced trauma, when people have experienced difficulty, sometimes I think our whole culture is just one trauma after another. When people have experienced that, even our culture knows that it is not normal for you to then go on and be okay. So what we are in makes us who we are. First idea. Second idea, what we choose to be in then will determine what we become. So if we are in something right now as a culture, I'm going to make the case that we actually do have a choice and that making that choice is what actually will give us the potential for moving in a different direction. Now remember in verse one, Paul sets side by side for the Ephesian Christians that they have two environments. They have an option. They are in Ephesus and they are in Christ Jesus, but they are in Ephesus, and those people, they are being faithful to the Ephesian environment, or faithful to Christ, and that is transformative. But one of those environments will dominate for us. We can be in Christ and still allow the Ephesian environment to be the most formative voice in our life, or we can be in Christ and we can allow it to drown out the voice. Again, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it becomes so powerful, so overwhelming, so real, that it actually overshadows and brings health and life to the Ephesian culture that we are in and we are a part of. So then Paul does something really interesting. He's already teased out that idea. And in the remainder of chapter one, in the beginning of chapter two, he divides that into three sections. And he, in section one, he says, here's what it is to be in Christ. The word in, little Greek preposition N, is used 45 times in the letter to the Ephesians. He breaks it up in the first section. He says, here's what it looks like to be in Christ. Then in the third section, he says, here's what it's like to be in Ephesus. And then in the middle section, he said, here is the spiritual secret for living in Christ so that it can be the formative moment for you rather than Ephesus. So why don't we look at Ephesus first, going over to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I want you to pay attention to these words. When we get done uh, reading the passage, why don't you go ahead and leave it up there for me too. It says, and you were dead in, everybody see that one? In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We pick up all those environmental words four times we have our little preposition in, but there are all kinds of other environmental words too. I want you to think about this. Our text gives us an environment of habit. We are in the sins in which we once walked. How many know when you engage in a particular behavior, it drives, it's like, a, it's like doing a two, uh, a little path through the woods. You've got your truck and you're gonna do your two track. The more times you drive over that, the clearer that path gets. It becomes the path of least resistance. And so our anger, our addiction, whatever it is, it becomes the path of least resistance for our lives over time. And he says that is one part of your environment. How many know your past is a part of your story? Now it doesn't have to be the dominating part of your story, but to deny that it's part of our story distances us from doing things productively that will help us get through it. He says, you have an environment of genetics. We lived among the sons of disobedience. We have people who have acted as parents that have been our parents and have parented us in the, in the art of brokenness. Their sin, their brokenness, their dysfunction has given rise to who we are. We have been mentored and parented by a culture often of anger and lust and, and pride and unforgiveness. Uh, my parents became Christ followers when I was, just before I was born. And um, if you're a first-generation Christ follower, you probably will know what I mean when I say not everything changes in a moment. And so my house was about 50% heaven and 50% not heaven. <laughs> my mother was what I like to call a cuss chucker. Anybody raised by a cuss chucker? You start, just pick stuff up and start throwing it and using every word. I was almost killed by a little line of brass geese one time, you know, as a child. And uh, my dad was, was a turtle. He would just like hide in the shell and just like duck out. Of, is it over? Is it over? You know, I got married. Guess what two conflict strategies I had at my disposal? I could either blow up or I could hide, but I didn't know there was any other way to do it. Why? Because I had been parented in a particular way. That is a part of our story. We have an environment of relationships. He says, it is among whom you once lived. 
We're surrounded by a web of people, many of whom have damaged us, and when we don't take time to heal, now we act out of that damage. We have an environment of internal desire. He says we have desires of the body and mind, which can, if not understood in their proper context, he says those can actually make us a child of wrath if we don't properly understand our own interior desires. It's no wonder we feel like we can't escape. Ephesus is all around us. It's in my past, it's in my family, it's in my friends, it's in my genetics, it's in my very personhood. I'm surrounded by it. And some of us feel this deeply, that anger or the jealousy or loneliness or pornography or negativity or cynicism, whatever it is, we just feel like we are being carried downriver by it. We are in Ephesus. In fact, he actually says you're in the course of this world. The Greek idiom there is the idea of being stuck in a river and you're literally just being dragged downstream by this life. Some of us get that. We feel that. Maybe even as a Christ follower, we have an area of our life that we just don't seem to be able to get out of that river. I want you to do me a favor. If you've got your phone or if you've got a little piece of paper or, uh, <clears throat> or your hand, you write an old-fashioned note on your hand with a pen, maybe a little smiley face with it. You know, there are people who write smiley faces on their letters. Any smiley face letter writers in here? <laughs> what is that? It's just like, it's just like, and they do it on all of them. They're just like, hey, just want to let you know you're fired. Smiley face. I don't know, I don't know, what, I don't know what that is. Y'all are weird. I don't know. So you got out your little piece of paper. That's not my notes. I have no idea why I got off on that. You got your little notes there. And here's what I want you to do. On your note, on your little note, on your iPhone, whatever it is you've got, here's what I want you to jot down. You've got things in your life that you could fill in the blank on this statement with. I would feel better at, I would do better at, I would whatever better. The thing that you want to see changed about yourself that would make you more like Jesus, that would be more, more joyful, that would experience more fruit of the Spirit. I would be better at, I would have more of, whatever, if it were not for. And here's what I want to know. I want you to jot down, what are three things that you think if you changed them in your life, you would either love Jesus more, love people better, or you would experience more of the fruits of the Spirit in your life? Why don't you write those down? Write them down. You're not doing it. Some of you aren't doing it. Do what I say. <laughs> if you're an Enneagram, I'm an eight. I like boss people around. My wife's a nine. We were never supposed to get married. <laughs> we have survived. The Lord, the Lord works in wonderful ways. What environmental issue is it for you that is making it difficult? Because these difficulties, like yours and mine, they are what people were experiencing in Ephesus. They were experiencing real life. They're experiencing reality. And it tells us in that chapter two, verses one through three, that the fruit of that really is death. If we let those things be our dominant environment, they actually lead to death. But we get to choose what we will be in, and that will determine what we become. There is an option. So it's interesting, Ephesus, the environment of Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, gets three verses. What it means to be in Christ gets 12. I think that is a narrative way, a literary way of Paul saying that the reality of the presence of Jesus in the believer's life is four times more powerful than the environment that you live in in the normal life. He wants to make sure even the optics of the text tell us that being in Christ is real. Like, it's formative, it is life-changing, it actually makes a difference. So all of your past, all of your present, all of your family, all of your even yourself as your body, all of that gets three verses, but Jesus gets 12. To say that he is the dominant, formative environment. If I can say it this way, the text reminds us that greater is the one we are in than the what we are in. Greater is the one that we are in than the what that we are in. Now, I know it's lengthy, but I want us to pay attention to these ends in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here we have our in 15 times in 12 verses. And it's interesting because we are given a new environment. We are given a new environment of origin. In Ephesus, we have an origin story. It is our own past. It is our own sin, our own brokenness, our own hurt, our own disappointment. But in Christ, he goes all the way back and says that actually in him, you have been chosen before the foundation of the world. So whatever the last 20 years have been like, or the last 40 years since you broke out of your mother's womb, whatever those have been like, your origin story goes back further than that. That your personal history goes back past your pain, past your brokenness, all the way into eternity with God's eternal plan and his preemptive love to the goodness of the garden. Those are your origin story as well. We have an environment of innocence. In Ephesus, we have a record of guilt and brokenness. But in Christ, it says we are blameless in him. He invites us to hide inside of his own holiness. We have a new environment of genetics. In Ephesus, we are the sons of disobedience. Some of us look at our parents and we're like, yep, that's about right. But in Christ, we have a new family history. We've been predestined to be adopted. We have a new parenting system which will shape us and form us in new ways, a new family legacy. We have an environment of culture. In Ephesus, it was the course of the river beating us against the rocks of hurt and disappointment and guilt. But in Christ, it actually says we now have an environment of his love in which he has lavished us with grace. And the result of this environment isn't spiritual and emotional and relational death like Ephesus, but it's spiritual, emotional, and relational life. It says that we have an inheritance, and even now you have a down payment of that inheritance. In other words, eternity where you are fully loved, where you are fully known, where your worst fears, that when you are fully known you'll be rejected, all of that will be gone for all eternity. And he says you have a down payment of that right now to experience so how many times are you going to say the word experience? I'm going to say it a lot. Because sometimes we have this thing we do where we read this passage and we're like, in Christ I'm loved. And we claim that as a promise. In Christ I am accepted. And we claim that as a promise. In Christ I've been lavished with grace. And we claim that as a promise. But that isn't what this text is talking about. Ephesus is not a promise. It's an experience. And for in Christ, to be more formative than Ephesus, the experience has to be more powerful and more real than what we experience in Ephesus. It's not just a quotation of it or a promise of it or putting it on the refrigerator. It's leaning into the presence of God until it becomes a reality that I feel lavished by the grace of Jesus Christ, that I feel loved by God. You say, I, I affirm your theology, JP, but that just doesn't seem to be happening for me. Point number three, and I'll wind up. And that is this, that if we're not experiencing it, we are not in it. That is not what we're, we're not talking about a faith statement. And I can't stress it strongly enough that being in Christ is a different category. Yes, there is a way in which you are in Christ and you are forgiven. That is settled. There is a way in which you are in Christ and you have been adopted. That is settled. There is a way in which you are in Christ and nothing you've ever done or will ever do can be held against you in some legal way. That is true. But that is not what this passage is talking about. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. You can be a legal citizen of the United States. But if you choose to live in North Korea, 
your citizenship will not be the dominant formative experience of how you experience what it means to live in a, con in a country. It won't be. And we can be Christians legitimately, but if we choose to let Ephesus be the narrative in our head, be the story that we live, be the loudest voice, the deepest pain, the most profound emotional experiences all happen in Ephesus, our citizenship will not be the thing that dominates our personhood. It will be this culture and it will have its way with us and it will be destructive until we're just as angry as everybody in Ephesus. We're just as stressed out as everybody in Ephesus. Our Facebook feed is just full of just as much venom as everybody else in Ephesus. Amen? We're just as grumpy of a coworker, just as grumpy of a parent, just as grumpy of a child as everybody else in Ephesus because we, for all intents and purposes, are living and leaning into that dual citizenship. I am a Christian by citizenship, but I am an Ephesian by residence. But I can tell you that being legally innocent doesn't keep you from feeling guilty. Knowing with our heads that someone loves us doesn't stop us from feeling unloved and unlovable. Knowing that God has given us a new nature doesn't automatically erase our memory or experience of our old nature. This passage is about defining our actual lived environment. Read you one passage of scripture, Italian story, and uh, use another text, and then in just a minute, the piano guy's gonna come up and he's gonna make me sound super spiritual. It's amazing how that works, doesn't it? It's like, oh, so good. Look okay, at he's moving in the spirit. So good. I told you that Paul is gonna tell us how to do this. And in Ephesians 1, 15 through 21, he prays and he says, for this reason, keeping in mind, he's just said, here's Ephesus, Here's, here is uh, what it means to be in Christ. How do I make Ephesus, or how do I make being in Christ the dominant voice in my life? Like where I'm really experiencing it. And he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Did you hear that? He said, I want you to have a spirit of revelation. How many, how many can say, that's experience. That's experience. I want you to have a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. I want your eyes of your heart to be enlightened. That's all kind of like mystical, experiential language. I want you to have an experience that actually transforms your emotional landscape. I want you to know what is the hope to which he's called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. What he's praying is not that they would be removed from Ephesus. Like, we can't get out of it. They say, sales of remote land and remote homes over the last three years have skyrocketed. Everybody's trying to get out of Ephesus. Even people who aren't Christ followers are like, this is not good. This is not bringing life to me at all. But he's not saying get out of it. That would be against the mission of God. In fact, if God wanted us to leave Ephesus, he could take care of that right now. Right? Asteroid hit, K first, we're all good. Right? He could take care of that right now. But he's left us here on mission. Sometimes it feels like we're, we're, we're so unwhole so impacted by Ephesus that it's hard to see how we could impact it. How do, we, how do we change the course of a river that we are stuck in, that is beating us, destructive to us? But what he's praying is that the reality of being in Christ would be experienced and would be felt and would be dominant. I want you to think of John chapter three. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And um, I hope it's okay if I overturn 
a little bit the way that maybe we've traditionally thought about this passage. What Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about isn't becoming a Christian in the traditional way. We think of that being, you know, born again. What he's actually talking to Nicodemus about is what it's like to live in the kingdom. And he looks at Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, he says, if you want to live in the kingdom, you're going to have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, my mother's not going to like that. She's not a fan. A fully grown adult child crawl back inside of her. He says, no, you don't get it. What I'm talking about, and I want you to listen to what I'm saying very carefully. He says, Nicodemus, you've already been born once. You were born into Ephesus. Now for him, it was Jerusalem. And it is having an effect on you. It is shaping you. The religious structure you're a part of, your family, your relationships, the socioeconomics of life, all of that, are they're impacting you. And I'm inviting you to be born again into a new environment where the Spirit is the formative environment of your life. Where for every whisper of the world that you are unloved, there is a felt, resounding, bone-rattling, you are loved from Jesus. Where the world says you are not loved, you're not worthy, there is a bone-shaking response from the Spirit of God. For every person who dismisses us and we're tempted to feel heard and withdraw from people and we become a part of the problem of not loving others, there is a, a healing, nurturing voice from God that heals that wound and brings you back to life and you're able to go out and love the very people who caused that wound toward you. I'm inviting you into another womb where there's a new family, a new environment, and a new experience. My mother passed away last year uh, after about 11 years ago. She was diagnosed with mucosal melanoma. Uh, for anyone who's familiar with that, when we met with the doctors, they told us that uh, the five-year survival rate was zero. No one had ever lived five years with it. They said six months at the inside, 24 at the outside is, is kind of normal. And um, I remember my mom all of a sudden, she just kind of went away. Let me explain what I mean by that. I would come over to their house at night and um, she would just be in the four season room by herself. She wasn't sleeping. She stayed up for couple of days straight. She'd be there at two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning. And I'll be honest, as a son, I was worried. I wasn't just worried about the cancer. I was worried about her emotional state. She just was kind of shut down. And I'm not going to lie. I was concerned that I would show up one morning and she would have decided that the battle wasn't worth it and she would have taken her life. Is it okay if I just admit I had those kind of thoughts? Is that okay? Well, Ephesus is real, people. So I finally pulled my mom aside and I said, Mom, I said, what's going on? What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing there at night? And she said, oh, JP, she said, don't worry about me. She said, I'm just getting into the nest. I said, what do you mean? When she was very first diagnosed with cancer, the Lord had given her Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. And night after night after night after night, she would crawl into the nest and just spend time being loved by God. Letting the voice of the womb of the Spirit, letting the voice of being in Christ become louder than the cancer. Become more real than her fear. Become the dominant experience of her life. Because 
the cancer was too real to be dismissed. So it either had to be run away from and ignored, it had to rule the roost, or something had to become more influential in her landscape than that. And as her Ephesus got louder, she needed to turn up the volume on her in Christness. And what was beautiful about that is that as my mom leaned into that, it was crazy because all kinds of other things that were a part of her Ephesus, family history stuff, just disappeared along with it. My mom passed away last year and someone said, you know, are you sad? I said, well, of course. I mean, I've talked to my mother almost every day. Now, she and I would read uh, Henry Nowen together and I'd go hiking at lunch and we'd talk about it at lunch and she was one of my best friends. Um, but the reality is, is that she passed away on the top of her own mountain. She had never loved Jesus more. Our family relationships had never been better. And the reason for that was as she spent time in the nest, Ephesus just slipped away, just began to move away. So what I'm really asking today is something pretty simple. I'm gonna make a statement and you can in your heart just tell me whether you think it's true. Here's the statement that I'm gonna make. I have come to the conclusion, I think, that one of the reasons the vast majority of Christians are struggling so badly is we just don't spend any time in the nest. That if we were to pull out your calendar, my calendar, and put it up on the screen, and say how much time is on that calendar, not for praying for stuff we need, not for praying for stuff we lead, not for binding the spirits of darkness, not for rebuking the political devils that we're afraid of, but for just sitting in the presence of Jesus and letting the new environment transform us. My heartfelt conviction is that we're not doing that. So my call today is pretty straightforward. I'm not gonna give a big altar call or anything like that in just a minute. I'm gonna ask you to stand and I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna ask you to slip up a hand. And some of us are like, you know, I've tried to get my prayer life in gear for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Try again. Try again. Because now more than ever, we need people who've been transformed by the presence of Jesus in their daily lives. And whether you're a guy and you think, I don't know if I need all that emotional stuff, you do. The only kind of people who've decided that they don't want to be loved are people who decided it costs too much to risk being loved. We all need it. And so all I'm going to ask you to do is say, I'm going to try again. And maybe I'm going to find a friend and we're going to, we're going to help each other to grow. Maybe I'm going to uh, you know, be accountable in some other way. Maybe you don't need that. You're internally motivated and you just know that you need to put it on the calendar and you'll do it, whatever it is you need to do. And a lot of times when we have this conversation, people are like, well, I don't even know what that means to get in the presence of Jesus and just say, let to be loved by God. Cool. The disciples went to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. And he said, when you pray, here's where you start. Our Father and you don't leave until everything within your soul knows what that means. Our Father gives us enough to chew on until we leave this earth. Just to let that become real and substantial to us in our lives. And I wanna make you a promise. See, I don't even know what that means. If you will commit to just spending 10 minutes at the feet of Jesus, just saying, I don't even know what this means, but that dude told me the Bible seems to say that I can experience your presence and be loved by you. I don't even know what this means. I'm gonna make you a promise. At some point sitting there at the feet of Jesus, you are going to sense the Spirit of God move over your soul, and you're gonna sense his love for you, his care for you, his grace toward you. He is going to lavish you, and it will change your life. That's the promise I wanna make you. So do me a favor and just stand up on your feet for just a second. 
I'm going to pray. And then Pastor Dave is going to come up and fix all the heresy, I think. If you're comfortable, would you just slip up your hands with me? Father, I am just deeply aware that in this room, if we were to go around and we were to be able to flip up on the screen how real Ephesus has been, we would see the hurt, the pain, the abuse, the trauma, the poverty, the dysfunction, the loneliness, the brokenness. Then we would see that we have jumped in at times and even been our own worst enemy. We would see it all. And our Father, what I'm asking you is this. Would you be real to your children? Would you be real to your children? Would you be so real to us that the love that we feel from you is more profound than the pain that we've experienced? Would you be so real to us that your care for us would be more healing than the destruction that has been leveled on us by others? Would you let gentle tears begin to flow as we sense your grace and your love? Would you let shoulders begin to drop as stress washes away? Would you let anxiety start to decrease as we just climb into the nest and you cover us and you care for us with your grace? Would you let it be real, Lord, for your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Dave.